There are Americans in Sudan who want to leave, but are they stuck? The lead starts right now. As the violence erupts in Sudan, the U.S. and other nations evacuate their embassies. But what about other Americans on the ground? Ahead, I'll speak with the top House Republican about the Biden administration's response so far. Plus, fired, then hired. A Kentucky Sheriff's Office explains why it hired the cop who killed Breonna Taylor. That officer's attorney is speaking out to CNN. And planes on fire, others hit by birds as airlines warn of a tsunami of staff shortages to come. What is going on with the airline industry? Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is here. We've got a lot of questions for him. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we start today with our world lead. The White House says it is actively working to help Americans get out of Sudan as a bloody conflict between two military rivals turns even deadlier. U.S. officials say it's too risky for a large-scale evacuation, so instead they are using intelligence and surveillance tools to help international convoys of cars get to the port of Sudan, where American military ships are standing by. The U.S. evacuated all of its government employees from Sudan over the weekend and suspended operations at its embassy in Khartoum. Blinken called the move the only, quote, feasible option, given that hundreds have now been killed and thousands more injured in the fighting. CNN's Kylie Atwood starts off our coverage from the State Department, where officials insist there are no plans to put U.S. military boots on the ground in Sudan. With the violence consuming Sudan only getting worse, the U.S. government is looking for ways to support American citizens who remain in the country. We would like to help as many Americans go as possible, but we want to be able to do so in a way that is fundamentally uh, reducing overall risk, not increasing overall risk. U.S. officials are providing details of the overland convoys headed out of the country by U.S. allies to those American citizens with dozens expressing interest in leaving the country. But if they join those caravans, they're doing so at their own risk, according to emails to U.S. citizens reviewed by CNN. A chilling decision because of the bleak realities on the ground. Some of the convoys have encountered problems, um, including uh, robbery, uh, looting, that kind of thing. There are no current plans to conduct an evacuation of the American citizens by the U.S. government. On Saturday night, more than 100 U.S. Special Forces flew into Khartoum to evacuate all the U.S. diplomats and their family members. A brisk operation on the ground under the cloak of darkness, leaving embassy operations temporarily suspended. My first priority is the safety of our people, and I determined that the deteriorating security conditions in Khartoum posed an unacceptable risk to keeping our team there at this time. The State Department has been telling Americans not to travel to Sudan since August of 2021. But the family members of Americans who are still in the country are frustrated by references to those comments. It makes me upset because there was no warning. Um, I don't, I think it's being painted as a country of, that's been war-torn for a while, which isn't true. This is unprecedented what's happening. And while the Americans in the country determine their safest next move, some of them, including an American teacher and her young daughter, are losing touch with their family members monitoring the situation from the U.S. We were able to communicate over FaceTime earlier on, but internet has been out in Sudan for a while now. Unfortunately, in the last 18 hours or so, we've completely lost contact with Trillian. 
Now, Pam, we're just getting news in from the Secretary of State putting out a statement saying that after intense negotiations over the last 48 hours, the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces have agreed to a nationwide ceasefire that's going to go into effect tonight at midnight. It's expected to last for 72 hours. The reason that this is critical, if it holds, Pam, is because they will be able to get in potentially humanitarian support. CNN spoke with a doctor who said that they are running precariously low on medical supplies and food. And of course, there are those convoys of Americans who are trying to get to safety out of the country. Pam. All right. Kylie Atwood at the State Department with that breaking news there about a ceasefire 72 hours. Thanks so much, Kylie. Also in our world lead, even the inventors of the word irony could not make this one up. Today, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov hosted a session of the United Nations Security Council focusing on the, quote, maintenance of international peace and security. Yes, we are talking about the same man whose country is currently murdering innocent Ukrainian civilians and trying to steal their land. CNN's Matthew Chance joins me live. So, Matthew, Mr. Lavrov was not met with a warm welcome today, unsurprisingly. Uh, not particularly, certainly not by Western states. The, the European Union and the United States uh, spoke out quite stridently against his presence there and the fact that he was saying the things that he was saying. But I, I think you have to remember that there are a lot of countries at the UN that are relatively sympathetic to the Russian point of view and the Russian narrative. Significant countries as well, like China, like India, like Brazil, like South Africa, they've all expressed a sort of sympathy from from you know with with Russia's standpoint. And so when Sergei Lavrov sat there and talked about how the United States was destroying globalization and has undermined the international system and gave that whole list of grievances from. Well, really going back to the Second World War with the atomic strikes uh, by the United States on Japan and you know, the, the Kosovo, the liberation of that territory um, and various other sort of episodes over the past 25 years or so uh, that are a, a constant theme of Russian grievances against the West, even though that was rejected by the United States. And we'll come to that in a second. There are a lot of countries that would have been receptive to that message. Let's go now to Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the uh, U.S ambassador to the United Nations, who at least sort of voiced the opposition of many countries to what Sergei Lavrov had to say. Our hypocritical convener today, Russia, invaded its neighbor, Ukraine, and struck at the heart of the UN Charter and all the values we hold dear. This illegal, unprovoked, and unnecessary war runs directly counter to our most shared principles, that a war of aggression and territorial conquest is never, ever acceptable. All right, well, also before he arrived in New York to attend this Security Council meeting, Sergei Lavrov uh, was absolutely critical of the decision by the United States not to grant everybody in his party, in his delegation, um, a visa. Lots of journalists from Russia apparently were denied uh, visas to travel alongside Sergei Lavrov to uh, Russia. He said that that was unforgivable. He would not forgive and he would not forget, uh, threatening unspecified consequences in response. All right, Matthew Chance, thanks so much for the latest there. Joining us now is Republican Congressman Michael McCall of Texas. He is the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Mr. Chairman, thanks for joining us. So I want to start with this worsening violence thanks, in Sudan right now. Uh, we just heard Kylie Atwood break the news about the ceasefire. Are you confident the ceasefire will hold? 
Well, no, I'm not, uh, but it's absolutely necessary. There was a ceasefire for just a couple of days during the religious holiday that enabled us to get the embassy employees out. Uh, the problem, as you identify, we have 16,000 Americans left behind who are given the message that you're sort of on your own right now. Now, let me just say, it's a very dangerous situation on the ground. Uh, this really reminds me, it's very reminiscent of Mogadishu, uh, you remember Black Hawk Down, where you have these rebel forces fighting in the streets of the city of Khartoum that have surface-to-air missiles. So I agree with the secretary. It's very dangerous for any uh, NGO like Samaritan's Purse to get in, but also to get Americans out of there in a, in a safe travel way. So I think the ceasefire, uh, to your question, is paramount to saving these Americans left behind uh, because it is so dangerous and so violent. And in terms of Americans, they are being on their own. You're hearing a little bit of a change in tune from the administration now. Jake Sullivan saying that the U.S. is actively facilitating exit of U.S. citizens from Sudan. But in your view, do you think the U.S. is doing everything possible to get these Americans who want to leave safely out of Sudan right now? Well, I've talked to many uh, officials in the State Department. I know that they are working very hard to get these Americans out. I, uh, again, hearing about Americans being left behind, it, it reminds me so much of the Afghanistan situation. I hope this is a very different scenario. Uh, I think ex- you know, getting extension on the ceasefire is going to be critical to saving these American lives who are going to be really in harm's way. And, and if I could just add, Pamela, I think uh, the current team on the ground, both the United Nations and U.S., uh, officials is not they did not do a good job at negotiating between these two factions that being the Sudanese armed forces and General Hamedi who is in charge of these uh, John Jui rebel forces uh, it's a very complex situation involving UAE Egypt uh, General Haftar other situations but until they can reach a ceasefire in an agreement uh, of a governance uh, you're going to continue to have this fighting on the streets You talk about the importance of negotiations. I want to turn to the United Nations Security Council on that note, where today Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov accused the U.S. and its allies of, quote, abandoning democracy and compare tensions to the Cold War. Does that sound like a country, in your view, that is interested in any type of negotiations? I think any negotiation currently would be uh, a fool's errand. I think what uh, I think what Putin wants to do is enter into negotiations to stall uh, the conflict and have a war of attrition. Uh, there may come a time and a place for that. I would argue, let's let this counteroffensive go forward. What we know will happen uh, hopefully in a few weeks uh, next month. I, uh, I, I'm hopeful that this will go very well and push Russian aggression out of Ukraine. And then Ukraine can negotiate from a, a position of strength and leverage rather than one of weakness. I find it amazing that the foreign minister would accuse American, uh, uh, you know, and, and Ukraine of deserting democracy. This is the, the largest invasion of Europe since World War II. And I just got back from Taiwan where Chairman Xi encircled the island with battleships and fire planes when I was there. You're seeing an affront to both Europe and the Pacific, not unlike my father's war, World War II. Wow, that, that's, uh, 
certainly um, brings it into light about what's going on right now, what's playing out on the world stage as it pertains to Russia and Ukraine. And you mentioned earlier that you know, negotiating with Russia is a fool's errand. But as you well know, right now uh, you have the Wall Street Journal reporter there who's imprisoned, as well as Paul Wieland, uh, has been in prison in Russia for years. And his sister, Elizabeth Whelan, she attended today's meeting. She's going to be joining us next. But I wonder, have you gotten any updates on the efforts to free Paul or this Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gershkovich? Uh, yes, and I know, uh, you know, uh, Lavrov spoke, you know, is, is head of this uh, this body. And, and Paul Whelan, uh, the story came up again. I, You know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that Griner was released the deal was originally when the arms dealer from Russia was was released that it was supposed to be Griner, the athlete, and Paul Whelan. When they got to, you know, the point of the handoff, they call it, uh, the Russians only showed up with one one of the hostages, and that was Griner. And unfortunately, the Marine, Paul Whelan, was left behind. Uh, very tricky on Putin's part. And, and in my view, the Biden administration got played by releasing a, a very dangerous arms dealer uh, for just one hostage and not both. All right, Foreign Affairs Chairman Michael McCall, thank you. Up next, here from Thanks, Elizabeth Whelan, we were just talking about her, her words today at that U.N. Security Council meeting and her message for the Russian foreign minister. From safety in the air to cancellations before you take off, is there any pressure on airlines to protect your summer travel plans? I'll ask Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, and President Biden's rollout plan ahead of his expected 2024 campaign announcement tomorrow. We're going to go live to the White House. We'll be right back. We're back with our world lead. As we mentioned, one person watching Russia's foreign minister chair today's UN Security Council meeting was Elizabeth Whelan, the sister of Paul Whelan, who has been in a Russian prison for four years. Elizabeth spoke at the UN before the session began. Russia's less than sophisticated take on diplomacy is to arbitrarily detain American citizens in order to extract concessions from the United States. This is not the work of a mature and responsible nation. It is the action of a terrorist state. I am here to tell Russia, free Paul Whelan. Elizabeth Whelan joins us now. Hi, Elizabeth. I also want to play part of United States Ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield's speech today. So we're going to listen to that, and then we'll talk on the other end. Where today we're joined by Paul's sister, Elizabeth. And I want Minister Lavrov to look into her eyes and see her suffering. I want you to see what it's like to miss your brother for four years. What was it like for you to be at this meeting in the very same presence of the same regime that imprisoned your brother? Oh, it was quite a moment. Um, and I was there for Paul um, and for Evan and for Brittany and for Trevor Reed, uh, even those people who have been freed already, because this regime has gone too far. This hostage diplomacy has to end. You have said that you haven't seen a current picture of Paul. The last one was at his trial three years ago. So you have no idea what he looks like right now. When is the last time you spoke with him? Do you know how he's doing? Well, yeah, it is actually stunning to think that I have no idea what my brother looks like anymore. 
Um, you know, that fact just hit me a couple of weeks ago when I was posting pictures of him. And that's his former life. You know, it, it's all gone. Russia has taken all of that from him. Um, he was able to speak to my parents today, actually. He's allowed to have calls from the prison, uh, short ones, 10 minutes or so. And he saw a little bit of me at the UN um, on, on Russian television. So he knows we're still fighting for him and, and that we will not give up. Wow. And, and actually, I have to say, just given how Russia operates, the fact that they carried your speech on the Russian television that he was able to watch is a bit surprising. What was his reaction <laughs> to oh, your speech? Well, I was surprised to hear that as well. I'm not quite sure what the circumstances were of, of how he was able to see that. Uh, but he was, he was delighted. He was delighted. I, I'm sure he would have loved to have been there himself uh, to look at Lavrov, to stare him in the eye. Uh, but I was able to do it for him. You have called the Russian playbook lazy, saying Evan Gershkovich was assigned the same investigator and placed in the same prison as your brother. What went through your mind when you heard Evan Gershkovich was facing the same fate as Paul? Well, we were shocked to find out he'd been arrested. I mean, uh, you know, a journalist on top of everything else, you know, Paul Whelan, Trevor Reed, both tourists, uh, Brittany Griner, a sports star, and now, uh, now a journalist. Um, and then when we found out espionage charges and we saw that he would be put in the same prison that Paul endured for 20 months, uh, oh, my heart just went out to him and to his family. Your brother, David, has said that his hope is starting to wear down. Do you feel that way, too? It's very difficult to keep up a level of, um, you know, of, of trying to press the U.S. government to do something helpful when really what you need is for Russia to free Paul. Um, I think it's very difficult uh, to maintain a steady, um, a steady sense of hope. But I will say that we know really good people are trying to help Paul get out. We just have to keep working with them and push them forward so that Paul is not left behind for a third time. There are no plans for U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to meet on the sidelines of that conference. And I'm wondering, does that disappoint you? No, I think we're making our point. All right, Elizabeth Whelan, and we will end on that note. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, at least five people were injured in what Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and police are calling a terror attack. A car rammed into pedestrians at a busy market in central Jerusalem earlier today. Police say the driver, a resident from a predominantly Palestinian village, was shot and killed by an armed citizen. The dark SUV with its window shot out was quickly removed from the scene as victims were transported to the hospital. This latest attack comes after weeks of tension in the region. Well, just ahead, network shakeup. Some of the biggest brands and TV news part ways with some of their biggest names and staff. Major shakeups today at three media giants. NBC's Universal CEO has stepped down. Tucker Carlson, a popular right-wing media host, is out at Fox News. And CNN anchor Don Lemon is out after 17 years. CNN's Oliver Darcy joins us now. Oliver, let's start with Fox. Do we know why they decided to take Carlson off the network's highly rated show? A, a shocking development over at Fox. Tucker Carlson was the highest rated single 
host over at that network. He's uh, been hosting the 8 p.m. show for several years. And a sudden announcement today from Fox, I'll read you part of it, announcing his departure. It was very short. It just says, Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have agreed to part ways. We thank him for his service to the network as a host and prior to that as a contributor. And it goes on to say that Carlson's last program already aired. It aired on Friday, um, even though Carlson on Friday said that he looked forward to greeting viewers back on Monday. Now, of course, we should point out that Tucker Carlson um, was one of the most extreme hosts over on that channel, and he sowed a lot of distrust in the legitimacy of the 2020 election. And, of course, this um, announcement is coming just days after Fox News settled that Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit for a staggering amount of money, the highest uh, ever uh, defamation settlement uh, in, in the history of U.S. media that's known. And so it's hard to disconnect those two events, um, but the network and Carlson are not connecting them themselves. And I should also note that we've reached out to Carlson several times today, and he has not, uh, not responded to comment requests. Well, there was also a big development today at our own network, CNN parting ways with anchor Don Lemon. Another stunning uh, announcement. Uh, this comes earlier today. This came actually uh, in an email to CNN staffers from CEO Chris Licht over at CNN. I'll read you what he said in his email. He said, CNN and Don have parted ways. Don will forever be a part of the CNN family, and we thank him for his contributions over the past 17 years. And it goes on. Uh, but Don Lemon came out, and he was more explicit. He said that the network had fired him, and then he uh, really lashed out and said that uh, um, he was hoping that someone in management would have had the decency to tell him directly about this um, about this uh, firing. And uh, CNN PR then put out a statement separately saying that what Don Lemon had said uh, was not accurate, that Don Lemon did have the opportunity to meet with management. So there's a back and forth playing out over there at CNN uh, in public as well. All right, let's uh, talk about NBC Universal. Big news out of there too. Big news over at NBCU, where the head of that company has stepped down and made a sexual harassment um, allegation. It's coming from uh, CNBC uh, anchor or, or correspondent Hadley Gamble. Her lawyer has put out a statement uh, saying that uh, after they file, filed a, a complaint, um, uh, this led to an investigation, a third-party investigation at NBCU, and this ultimately led to Comcast, NBCU's parent company, uh, deciding to remove Shell, and Shell acknowledged the inappropriate relationship in a statement of his own on Sunday. So shockwaves rolling through the media industry today, Pam. Yeah, big day for you covering all these developments. Oliver Darcy, thank you. Well, my question's up next for Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg as delays, cancellations, bird strikes, and more rock the airline industry. What do you think summer travel is going to be like? We're going to ask him after this break. In our money lead, the Justice Department has joined the investigation into the meltdown that forced Southwest Airlines to cancel nearly 17,000 flights around Christmas and New Year's. You probably remember that. The Department of Transportation already opened its own investigation. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins us now to bring us up to speed on what's going on. Secretary, thank you for joining us. So what is your understanding about why the Justice Department has joined your investigation now? 
Well, they're uh, joining this process at a time when we really have two lines of effort going on. One of them has to do with making sure passengers are fully taken care of. We got a lot of enforceable uh, commitments from Southwest last year about how they would treat passengers in this scenario. Now we're using our enforcement powers to make sure that people got those refunds, got those reimbursements, ground transportation, everything they're entitled to under that customer service plan that we had negotiated prior to that uh, that meltdown. The second piece that we're working on has to do with realistic schedules. Uh, we need to make sure that airlines are prepared to service the tickets that they sell, and unrealistic scheduling can be a real threat to the operations of an airline. Uh, so both of these are uh, parts of ongoing work that we're doing. And you know, whether it's Southwest Airline or any airline, mm-hmm. we always stand uh, prepared to make sure that passengers get the support that they need when these situations happen. So can you give us a status update? I know these investigations are ongoing, but how Have all the passengers impacted? Have they been reimbursed or received a voucher? And do you believe there was unrealistic scheduling done by Southwest? So I'm not prepared to release a finding right now. What I will say is that we have gathered a huge amount of data. We've gone through a lot of complaints. We have seen large numbers of uh, passengers that got those reimbursements, got those refunds. But we're not going to rest until we understand uh, all of the different complaints that have come in and can be sure that everybody was taken care of properly. I'm going to talk about flight safety. That's in a lot of people's minds after they're seeing this video, that scary new video of flames coming out of an airline engine after a possible bird strike. The plane landed safely, but the FAA's database shows more than 1,700 bird strikes this year. How concerned are you about this, and what is the solution here? That's right. This is an ongoing safety concern. Now, I want to emphasize air travel in America is exceptionally safe. It's actually the safest form of transportation. But in order to keep it that way, we are always looking at new developments and trying to make sure that there is even more safety built into the system. Now, what happened in in the case of this flight that, uh, uh, you know, no one wants to uh, look out the window and see what these passengers saw. Uh, the flight crew, uh, of course, returned uh, that plane safely to the ground and uh, everybody was uh, was taken care of there. But uh, what we're interested in, in addition to making sure there are those safety systems that allow an airplane to safely land with one engine operational where necessary, is to try to prevent these bird strikes from happening in the first place. Uh, FAA, believe it or not, does a lot of research on birds and on wildlife uh, for precisely this reason. It, it might sound like a, a, a pretty quirky area of research until you realize that there is life safety on the line but to make sure we have fewer of these incidents. And, you know, everything from bird habitats and bird behavior changing uh, to the evolution of engines that are more efficient and therefore quieter uh, means that we might need to undertake new uh, specifications, new safety measures to try to minimize those bird strikes that uh, are a real concern for airliner safety. Yeah, it was so interesting reading about it today that there's an increasing popul- there's increasing populations of large birds and also their inability to hear the quieter engines on these planes. So um, just a really interesting to learn about that. I want to talk to you also as we look ahead. A lot of people are, are planning their summer travel, myself included. But that comes against this backdrop of this airline industry warning about um, airline industry group, we should say, warning about a coming tsunami of pilot retirements. There's already a shortage of air traffic controllers. You have this key New York facility affecting flights into JFK, LaGuardia, New York, that has been operating at about half its projected staffing level. How messy will summer travel be as a result of all of this? Well, uh, we're acting to make sure that airlines are accountable for serving passengers well. We've seen so far improvement this year compared to last year, but uh, certainly not resting easy as we look at the numbers week by week and day by day. 
On the air traffic control side, I'll say that we are uh, doing a ton of hiring right now uh, to make sure that we get more qualified air traffic controllers as the demand increases and as some controllers retire. But I'll tell you, this is uh, also one reason I'm very concerned about uh, some of the extreme proposals that we've seen coming from members of the House GOP. When they talk about cutting anything that that is non-defense discretionary spending, I'm not sure Americans uh, all all realize that uh, one of the things they're talking about cutting is our ability to grow the air traffic control workforce. Uh, Their budget proposal would actually mean shutting down air traffic control towers. Uh, This is the exact wrong time to be doing that. And so whether it's the the proposal from the uh, extreme House Republicans to uh, cut uh, the air traffic control uh, funds or the effect that that would have on railroad safety Mm -hmm. at a time when we're all uh, rightly paying more attention to that. And I think this is the wrong time uh, to be cutting railroad inspections. I don't think there was ever a good time right. uh, to be cutting a railroad inspection, but definitely not now. These are exactly the things that are at stake in what can sometimes seem like a very technical process of negotiating that budget. Uh, our budget proposal is one that will prepare us for things like the ability to maintain our aviation system in good working order. Yeah, it was interesting. I saw you and Colorado Republican Congressman Lauren, Lauren Boebert exchanging tweets recently uh, she had talked about the rail accidents, pointing the finger at you, and you said that essentially that their, the Republicans' plan will will uh, mean that fewer track inspections annually, fewer safety inspection days for, for rail. So it makes you wonder, if the Republicans' plan passes, will it be safe to use trains? Will it be safe to fly? Well, this is exactly why I think we have to uh, call anybody who wants to make political hay out of transportation issues to the carpet and say, are you serious or not? As you mentioned, Representative Boebert, who's a leader in the Freedom uh, Caucus, uh, was talking about uh, derailments without in any way acknowledging that that Freedom Caucus budget proposal would cut inspection days, which would mean less resources going to preventing derailments and railroad accidents. Uh, You know, we we have to make sure that uh, everyone who's out there uh, trying to politicize safety issues is is accountable for what their proposals would actually do. And if you're one of these extreme House Republicans proposing a budget that would cut not just research into things like uh, aviation safety, but actually cut our ability to hire air traffic controllers and to inspect railroads and make sure that they're safe, uh, then you have to be accountable for that position. And of course, as you well know, Republicans argue there's got to be some spending cuts somewhere, but you're saying where they're looking for the spending cuts, especially in your world, uh, that could be a real issue for, for traveling. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much. Up next to the White House, President Biden's expected 2024 campaign announcement tomorrow. But does America really want him to run? There is new insight into that question. Well, President Biden just met with three Tennessee state lawmakers at the White House who were targeted for expulsion after bringing a gun reform protest to the state house floor an action that Republicans said violated rules on decorum. This comes as Biden is expected to announce his re-election bid possibly tomorrow. CNN's Phil Maddenly is at the White House. So what's the plan as of now with the understanding it could change, Bill? <laughs> Possibly a good word to always utilize yes. when talking about what President Biden is going to do next, particularly as it relates to his political plans. But there's no question over the course of the last week, Pamela, his close advisors and outside allies have moved rapidly uh, to lay the groundwork for a presidential re-election announcement tomorrow morning. It would come in the form of a campaign-style video, low-key, not some big re-election rally, uh, as well as a fundraising request and really start the process of what's going to be a months-long ramp-up plan to build on what has mostly
actually happened behind the scenes up to this point. His team putting together the infrastructure of the campaign, fundraising plans, personnel uh, interviews and decisions being made. And some of those decisions are starting to come out, which I think underscores that they are moving forward uh, with that re-election plan sometime soon. Julia Chavez Rodriguez is now expected to be announced as the campaign manager, currently a senior advisor to the president here in the White House, runs intergovernmental affairs. Uh, but very clearly moving towards that point, whether or not the president does it, well, that's obviously up to him. That's right. So how closely then are the president's advisors tracking these polls that are showing voters have no appetite for a Trump-Biden rematch. There was this new NBC News poll that shows 70% say Biden should not run again, 60% say Trump shouldn't run again. How are they viewing that? Yeah, look, they're, they're not naive. They, they see the polls, and it's not just the public polling. They have their own internal polling as well, and there's an understanding that there is work to do. Now, the counter to that when you talk to White House advisors is that they feel like they've got the record and the message, and perhaps most importantly, the contrast with whoever the Republican candidate the president would face off against uh, to actually build a significant amount on those numbers. I think the biggest concern right now is that when you look at Democrats in a lot of those polls, a majority, slight majority, but a majority nonetheless, don't want to see the president run again. There's a reality of the fact that he's the oldest president in American history. Officials know that and know that there's nothing they can do about that. You can't message 80 years old away. They want to build off the fact that that also brings with it experience, experience that drove the legislative wins of those first two years, legislative wins the president's going to be talking about repeatedly over the course of the next couple of months. That'll be the baseline of this campaign. Whether or not it resonates, advisors think it can, clearly work to do, though. All right, Phil, my name live for us from the White House. Thanks so much. And the White House now says the U.S. is, quote, actively facilitating the exit of American citizens from Sudan, but the administration is holding off on a large-scale evacuation. Wolf Blitzer is getting ready for the Situation Room, and there are growing questions tonight, Wolf, about evacuating Americans from Sudan, those who want to leave. You're absolutely right, Pamela, and we hope to get some of those questions answered. Coming up soon, uh, I'll be speaking live with a key National Security Council official, retired U.S. Navy Admiral John Kirby, will be joining me in the Situation Room. He's closely monitoring the situation in Sudan and that newly announced ceasefire between the warring factions. We'll ask him on the fate uh, of thousands, thousands of American citizens still in the country right now after the uh, U.S. military evacuation of U.S. embassy, diplomatic and other government and military personnel. It's all coming up in the Situation Room that begins right at the top of the hour. All right. Thanks so much, Wolf. And by the way, incredible reporting from Poland that you did with Dana Bash. Thank you very much. Up next, right here on The Lead, the new job for the officer who killed Breonna Taylor and the explanations behind his new hire. The former Minnesota police officer convicted of accidentally killing Dante Wright was released from prison this morning. I want to warn our viewers, the body camera footage we're about to show you is disturbing. Kim Potter served 16 months of a two-year sentence convicted after she says she mistook her gun for her taser and killed Wright, who was unarmed during a traffic stop in 2021. Dante Wright's mother tells CNN she is still angry and worried that she's going to forget her son's voice, but finds peace in the fact that Potter, quote, will never be able to hurt anybody as a police officer again. And turning now to another deadly police shooting, quote, disgust and disappointment from Breonna Taylor's family today after they learned the officer who fired the bullet that killed their daughter in a botched 2020 police raid, has just been hired by a sheriff's department in the same state. Miles Cusgrove was fired but not indicted for shooting 16 rounds into Taylor's Louisville apartment 
and failing to turn on his body camera. But as CNN's Jason Carroll reports, Cosgroves is a new boss and insists he'll bring, quote, experience to the job. Brianna Taylor's mother had one word to describe how she felt after learning former Louisville Metro police officer Miles Cosgrove had been rehired by another department. Anger um, to think that another department would even want this guy to be a part of any department for that matter just angers me. The Carroll County Sheriff's Department recently hired Cosgrove, according to his attorney. First and foremost, on behalf of Miles and myself, we don't want anything to take away or diminish the value of the tragedy that happened to Brianna Taylor and her family. We're not minimizing that at all, but he definitely has had a hard road to go and getting back to trying to figure out a way to support his family in the future. Cosgrove was one of three LMPD officers who fired their weapons during a raid on Breonna Taylor's apartment the night of March 13, 2020. Cosgrove fired more than a dozen times, including the fatal bullet that killed Taylor. He has not faced any criminal charges related to the shooting, though the Louisville Metro Police Department fired him in January of 2021 for failing to use his body camera and violating the department's use of force rules. I started shooting as soon as I saw the flash, almost almost simultaneously. During a department hearing to appeal his firing, Cosgrove expressed remorse. Do you regret that Breonna Taylor ended up being shot and killed? Of course. Of course I do. It's, it's horrible. The department's merit board upheld his dismissal. Despite that, the Carroll County Sheriff's Department decided to hire Cosgrove. His attorney notes four other officers in the raid faced federal charges in connection with that raid, three accused of lying in order to obtain a search warrant. There was a grand jury that met at the state of Kentucky that cleared him of any wrongdoing. A federal grand jury was convened and also determined that there were other people who warranted being charged criminally, but not Miles. It's this good old boy system. Like, so I'm not surprised at all. Those seeking justice for Breonna Taylor say Cosgrove getting a badge back is a danger to the new community he is serving. The people of Carroll County should be very afraid and, and should not let this hire stand. You don't know what to trust anymore or who to trust. It's insane to me. Well, Pamela, CNN did reach out to the Carroll to the Carroll County Sheriff's Department, but we did not hear back from him. Uh, Carroll County located about an hour or so from Louisville. There have been calls for protests there, but so far no large protests have materialized. Pamela. All right, Jason Carroll, thank you so much. You can follow me on Twitter at Pamela Brown CNN or Tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can just listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.